Good morning. My name is Paul Keim, and I teach here in the Bible and Religion Department and also in Modern and Classical Languages. And I'm happy to welcome uh, back to campus our speaker for this morning and to introduce him to you. James Crable is Senior Executive for Global Ministries of Mennonite Mission Network, which is the mission and outreach agency of Mennonite Church USA. For 20 years, he's served with the Mennonite Board of Missions, which is the organizational precursor of the Mission Network. And most of that time he spent with his wife, Jeanette, teaching Bible and church history among the Francophone African Independent Churches of Ivory Coast. And while there, they helped to facilitate learning and service opportunities for Goshen College SSTers, as well as students from another Mennonite school somewhere east of here. Uh, James went on to complete a PhD in ethnomusicology at the University of Birmingham, the one in England, uh, and his thesis was published under the title, The Hymnody of the Harris Church Among the Dida of South Central Ivory Coast, a Historical Religious Study, 1913 to 1949, which, by the way, is still available from Amazon.com, marked down from $129.95 to $67.69. So as you can see, his academic credentials are impeccable. He's the author of, uh, or, or editor of many other books, articles, and series, including the well-regarded Missio Dei booklets. And it was in this publication that one of James's best-known articles appeared, which is entitled, Does Your Church Smell Like Mission? Winning the World for Christ One Casserole at a Time. I'm sorry, I made that subtitle up. It's not really on the original. James is a popular speaker and teacher, uh, including a course that he's taught several times here at Goshen College uh, in missiology. He co-edited a 2005 book entitled Anabaptists Meeting Muslims, A Calling for Presence in the Way of Christ. And these are papers that came out of a remarkable consultation uh, on Islam that took place in October of 2003 at Eastern Mennonite University that I was also privileged to attend. And in it, it was explored the church's encounters with the Muslim community around the world, uh, story, stories that were sometimes troubled and tragic, sometimes transformative and redemptive. One can scarcely think of a more topical theme for us in these days, nor one more qualified to address it than our speaker. His topic is simply Christians meeting Muslims. Join me in warmly welcoming James Crable. Well, I'm pretty sure God has a sense of humor uh, and is chuckling as uh, he looks down on us today and sees me as a speaker on Christians meeting Muslims. There uh, actually was very little in my early year growing up period uh, that would have prepared me for this topic. I grew up two miles straight north of here in North Goshen on the other side of the tracks. Uh, and in a time and place where there was really very little cultural uh, diversity. The immigrants that existed in those days were uh, workers from Tennessee and Kentucky who uh, came to work at the IXL factory uh, north of the tracks. Uh, 
But there were no Hispanic speakers in Goshen that I knew of, certainly not in my little world. Uh, there were no African Americans. And in fact, uh, as I've thought back on this, I think the two African Americans that I remember seeing during the first 10 years of my life uh, both happened here on the Goshen College campus as a part of the lecture music series. One of those was in 1960 when Martin Luther King was on campus, so that was a good start for me. Um, uh, but the second was um, Marian Anderson, who was a singer and I think came to campus twice in the 50s. And uh, my parents brought me and my sister to hear her sing. What I remember from that encounter <clears throat> was actually not something related to the program itself, but to a problem that happened as I heard it anecdotally and that's deeply embedded in my memory, whether or not it's true, uh, was that Marian Anderson or Goshen College had trouble finding her lodging in Goshen uh, because there were certain hotel owners who simply refused her an overnight stay. Um, one of those hotels, as I recall, or motels, was only a few, blo a few blocks north of here on Main Street. And uh, that's because Goshen was part of sort of this sundown town network where it was formally or informally uh, on the records that uh, people of color, black people in particular, would not and should not stay overnight in the city of Goshen. Um, in the Goshen City Directory from 1939 to 1955, during the years when I was born and growing up, uh, there was this proud statement, uh, namely that there is an absence of crime in the city of Goshen due, due to the character of the population. We are 97.5 native-born white, 2.5 foreign-born white, that would make 100%, and no Negro population. This was my Goshen. And uh, to say the least, there were no interactions with people of other faiths, uh, Muslims, uh, if this was the world in which I lived. My first encounter um, uh, with Muslim brothers and sisters really came when I was about the age of many of you, a little bit older maybe, in my mid-twenties, when my wife and I went to Paris, France to prepare for language study and going to West Africa. And we were thrown together with all kinds of other students from around the world, international students. In my class of 22 students, there were about uh, seven or eight uh, Muslims from different places, from Pakistan, India, four from Iran. Uh, and uh, we uh, learned to know each other. We hung out together for the whole year. Uh, one memory I have of that was inviting the whole class to our little apartment, uh, which was on the second floor of the Mennonite Church in Paris, uh, and having a carry-in meal where all the students brought foods from around the world and we shared the meal. And so we ate together and at the end of the meal people were talking about special recipes and what they really liked. And uh, one of the uh, students from East Asia started talking about what she had put in the food and we discovered that pork was a key element. Um, no one had known that up until then and I remember one of the students from Iran paling on the spot 
uh, not showing up for two days of classes after that because he was very sick. Um, the next important encounter for me personally uh, was when we moved to West Africa and lived in a small village called Yokobwe. We were there to work with the independent churches, teaching Bible and so on, but we lived in a neighborhood of the village that was mostly made up of uh, immigrants from the north, from Burkina Faso. And so our children, who were two years old and six weeks old when we moved to the village, uh, really grew up with most of their friends being uh, independent church uh, buddies or Muslim friends from Burkina Faso. And uh, one of the memories I have was um, at a certain point uh, seeing the little band of my son Matthew's buddies come sailing around the side of the house uh, and hearing them say, let's go play church. Uh, and so I was curious how that was going to work out. Um, and a few minutes later, seeing them all uh, on their faces facing Mecca, I assume it was the direction that the mosque uh, had designated as the place to pray, and chanting this song. Uh, afterward, I asked my son Matthew what they were singing or chanting, and he said, oh, well, we have a song that we sing together. Um, sweet bananas, sweet bananas, they are so good. Um, little early syncretism going on in my backyard there in West Africa. Um, now, I say this because um, I don't think I was any more or less prepared to encounter uh, the Islamic faith or Muslim brothers and sisters uh, in the Mennonite church than most of my other Mennonite brothers and sisters who ended up uh, traveling around the world and engaged in all sorts of endeavors. Uh, and those, those encounters with Muslims, I think, are, have been of sort of three types over the last mostly 50 years. Uh, the first encounter would be, could be ca characterized as sort of mission and service ministries. Uh, many of these began when there was a particular crisis, um, uh, a, a natural uh, crisis where uh, there was need for relief or aid. And uh, Mennonites responded to the call and helped to build schools uh, or provide food relief or whatever, uh, and developed many close friends with people as they worked alongside uh, this major effort to alleviate suffering. Uh, in other situations, there were uh, people who really committed their lives 20, 30, 40 years to live in Muslim communities and walk alongside people, understand uh, how people put their world together, learn the language, and share their faith. And once again, uh, many of these people developed long-standing lifetime friendships uh, as they uh, gave their lives to um, their brothers and sisters in the locales where they were called to serve. Uh, the situations were very different, some of them in West Africa, some in East Asia, some in the Middle East. Uh, they, it would take a long time just to describe the, the kinds of encounters that were had. Many of them were friendly encounters where friendships were built. Others uh, ended up in some kind of conflict. Some were kidnapped, held for ransom, and some died. A second kind of encounter 
um, was what I might call the more formal theological conversations that Mennonites have had with Muslims. Uh, one of the early ones was, was with David W. Shank, uh, who was serving with Eastern Mennonite Board of Missions, uh, co-taught a course, University of, of Nairobi, uh, with a Muslim professor. And the whole course was designed around trying to understand each other and creating a conversation. So they would take themes related to both faiths, and uh, one of them would present an issue and the other would respond. And then the, the other one would present an issue and the other one would respond. And eventually these conversations were, were documented and ended up in a book uh, that has been translated in many languages and used broadly across the Muslim and Christian world as a way to model conversation. All kinds of other conversations have happened. There have been exchanges of clerics and theologians between North American Mennonites and clerics in Qom, in Iran. Uh, most recently, there, um, there were, were 138 Muslim clerics from across the spectrum of the Muslim community who issued a statement to the Christian community called the Common Word and uh, calling for a new conversation because the direction that we're headed is really not going anywhere. Mennonites responded to that. Uh, MCUSA, Mennonite Church USA, uh, was one of the first denominational responses to that. And you can see what we responded along with dozens of other responses on their website at Common Word. A uh, conversation that just happened a few weeks ago was with one of our workers at Mennonite Mission Network, a professor in Islamic studies and a um, Muslim professor uh, who together had a conversation in the city of Lancaster, Pennsylvania uh, that was uh, sponsored by four different theological, biblical theological institutions from a very conservative perspective and uh, more liberal who came together and said this conversation is important, let's host this together. A third uh, way that we have encountered Muslims um, <clears throat> has been in the more informal sector, and some of that happens on campuses like Goshen uh, or other Mennonite um, universities uh, further west or east of here. Um, and uh, there have been, of course, many other sorts of, of, of informal encounters. Many of them have been uh, of Mennonites living in communities that have high populations of uh, Muslim populations. Sometimes congregations, Mennonite congregations, have engaged uh, in relationships with uh, Muslim brothers and sisters. Particularly after September 11, there were some very interesting initiatives um, between Mennonite congregations in a variety of places and the Muslim community in their neighborhoods. In some instances, uh, it was clear that uh, many Muslims were afraid to go out of their houses, to go shopping, to, to live in the public sector because of what people might do to them. And I know of one congregation in particular who went to the mosque and specifically told the leadership and faithful there that if, if there are people afraid to go shopping, we would like to accompany you. We would like to go with you and walk alongside with you and, and be there with you so you don't have to live in fear in our communities. The Prairie Street Mennonite Church in Elkhart, Indiana, where I attend, uh, did a series this past spring 
on understanding Islam. And uh, we had a variety of features over a 13-week period, some of which were looking at texts and understanding uh, the fundamentals of uh, Islam. Uh, some were having storytellers come in and talk about uh, uh, the West Bank or the um, Muslim reality in countries like Dagestan or other places, Indonesia. Um, and toward the end of our series, we also wanted to engage uh, Muslims living in our neighborhood. About one block from the Prairie Street Church is a little store called One Stop, which is about uh, a 20 by 20 uh, convenience store, foot convenience store, where apparently you with one, with one stop can get anything your heart desires. Um, and, and this little shop uh, is run by an Iraqi brother and a Palestinian. So we invited them on Sunday morning to join us. And uh, they brought with them a delegation from the, Islam, uh, the, the Islamic Society of Michiana uh, to talk about their faith. And uh, we spent our Sunday school hour together learning from them what it's like to live in Elkhart, Indiana, uh, with all the joys and pains uh, that, that they encounter. Out of that meeting, um, we were invited to join them for prayers uh, on Friday, several weeks later. So our Sunday school class picked up and uh, went to Mishawaka, a few blocks off of the famous Grape Road, the Miracle Mile of Mishawaka, um, where um, we drove into a parking lot of the Islamic Society of, of Michiana and joined them for prayers. Um, as it turns out, during the course of our time together, there were probably 80, 90 people who showed up for prayers. We sat at the back and listened in to a homily uh, presented by a young PhD student from Pakistan uh, who uh, gave us a discourse on the importance of peace in Muslim faith. Um, then uh, we had a time for question and answers. And uh, so we gathered at the back of the prayer room and were able to ask questions like we were able to uh, encounter the, their leadership in our own congregation. Uh, these kinds of things are happening all over as people are trying to find ways to live together. Um, there's a fourth area that I think is important to mention, uh, and that is the growing Mennonite population outside of North America. Uh, and Europe, where in fact that is now the majority of the Mennonite church. Uh, many of them living in contexts where they rub shoulders constantly with um, Muslim brothers and sisters. And so in Ethiopia or Indonesia or Burkina Faso, uh, this is just part of everyday reality. And it's pretty obvious to me that these are the ones from whom we are going to have to learn uh, on how we work at these issues. Um, the Indonesian situation is a very interesting one where Mennonites and Muslims have worked together at peace building or conflict resolution initiatives, uh, which doesn't mean that there's no conflict. I remember in 97, 1997, uh, attending Mennonite World Conference and hearing an Indonesian pastor talk about uh, a very difficult period right then when churches were being burned, pastors were being killed. Um, and one of the really difficult things he had to face, face with his own Mennonite youth group, uh, who after so much destruction, 
came to him late at night, uh, one night, and said, the time has come to act. Uh, we can't just continue to see our churches being burnt and our pastors killed. We need to respond. It's the only language people understand. Um, and he talked about how difficult it was to stand there in front of these young people who uh, were feeling all the frustrations of their life and saying, you know, I understand exactly what you're saying, but the fact of the matter is I have chosen to organize my life around Jesus. And when I look at Jesus and his response to those who were in opposition to him, I have to reach out in prayer and forgiveness uh, because that's God's way. I understand how you feel, but if I am going to follow Jesus, I have to say no to violence. Of the 52 countries in the world today where there is some persecution of the church, 36 of those are in settings like this uh, in primarily Islamic cultures and this is the reality of the world in which we live. In 2003, some Mennonites decided to come together and talk about their experience. And out of that several-day consultation of about 300 people coming together, um, we told the stories, the multiple stories of what had happened, and, and tried to think through what are the issues, the challenges and obstacles that we're facing today, and asked the question, do Mennonites have a particular gift in this area of relating to our Muslim brothers and sisters? The larger report is this <laughs> volume, uh, but I thought I would just say a few words about a, thing, a few things we concluded. One of the first things was a, a reaffirmation of the fact that we have both descended from Abrahamic origins. We are part of that same family of God calling forth Abraham and Sarah to be a blessing to the nations. We both have this, this mandate to be about blessing people. Uh, we make up together over half of the world's population, Christians and Muslims. If we can't manage to bless each other, how can we bless the nations? And a recommitment on the part of those of us who are part of the Christian tradition to work at that with more vigor. A second thing we said to ourselves was that coming to the table as followers of Jesus doesn't mean we set all that aside uh, in the conversations. Our understanding of what God is up to in the world is that God is reconciling all things to himself and Jesus. That's at the core of who we are as followers of Jesus. It means that we can have individual, personal reconciliation with God through Jesus. It means that people who are in conflict, Jews and Gentiles in the New Testament, can create a new community together as Jesus stands in our midst and becomes our peace. It means that those who have embraced this understanding of God's work in the world create a new community that the world has never seen before. Um, because they bring together differences and create a community of peace 
in Jesus, and then commit themselves at the invitation that God has given us to become models and messengers of the cosmic peace plan. Um, so recommitting ourselves to that uh, sets us on a trajectory of making this a high value for us as a community. It also means that uh, in those places where the message of peace and the methods of peace have not always been the same, that sometimes the church has preached the message of peace but then go out and went out and, and, and cut people into pieces, that we need to work a lot harder in making sure that the methods and message of the, of the peace of God um, are in sync. And where that has not happened, the church needs to confess that they have fallen short. Uh, we can't move ahead unless we can admit those times in our past when we have failed to live up to our own calling. And so uh, when you think back through the history of the church and those times when we've created obstacles to the message and may continue to through our engagements, our military engagements around the world, uh, as Tony Compolo has reminded us, uh, engaging in Iraq may well have put the relationships with our Muslim brothers and sisters back a thousand years, which of course takes us to the Crusades. Uh, we need to be in confession. Um, now a lot of people will look at this kind of wimpy uh, approach to relationships to our Muslim brothers and sisters as something that's not realistic and will not advance the cause. Uh, and of course, uh, there are other voices in the Christian community that would try to take us some other way, like the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence, uh, who has been quoted as speaking in Christian audiences about America's Christian army waging war against the idol of Islam. We're a Christian nation, he says, our spiritual enemy will only be defeated if we come against them in the name of Jesus. Um, for followers of Jesus, uh, we have a challenge of how we work at these issues and how we, how we understand Jesus as the one that we say we follow. Of course, one of the accusations is that Jesus lived in this peaceful little setting that was so different from our reality that uh, couldn't possibly have understood our reality. But that's why we need to look at Jesus again. Jesus who lived in an occupied territory, a territory where the Jewish community was divided on how to respond to the occupation. And one of the most forceful responses was the violent one, the group known as the Zealots. Uh, we know that Jesus grew up in Galilee in the hotbed of the Zealot movement. And it's almost certain that the disciples that he gathered around him were people who had been more influenced by the terrorist approach to the occupation uh, than any other political option out there. We know that one of his disciples was a zealot, Simon the Zealot. And then there is, of course, Judas Iscariot, which may be also a code name for the Sicari movement, the, the dagger bearers 
Uh, and then we have the Sons of Thunder. Who were these people? Why were they the Sons of Thunder? Not because they drove Harleys, not because they snored loudly, but because they wanted to call down fire from heaven to obliterate people who were different than they were. Uh, and then there's Peter, of course, who has a dagger under his cloak and doesn't fail to use it. It is not there to trim his fingernails or to, to, to skin fish. Uh, he probably, as much as any, was one of those people affected by this trend. And here Jesus is pulling these characters together into a band of disciples. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful to have some kind of record of, you know, of his life with these terrorist-tended people? A book you might call something like, uh, you know, A Thousand Nights and Three Thousand Meals with a, with a Band of Terrorists. It would be wonderful to have a book like that, but of course we do. It's called The Gospels. Um, and taking another look at what that might mean for us today uh, is something that followers of Jesus need to take seriously. We have a big challenge as followers of Jesus, learning to know about our own story and living in a world where one quarter of Americans uh, have officially gone on record saying they do not want a Muslim anywhere near to their neighborhood and a large number on one talk show I was listening to, not to be mentioned, thought it would be a good idea to actually brand Muslims with some kind of a crescent uh, and make sure that all of their official papers were stamped in some special way so that we'd get a heads up on who the terrorists were. This is the world in which we live. And if we're to move forward, I'm convinced uh, we're going to have to take a different approach, approach that takes following Jesus seriously. I will just close with a very interesting invitation from one of the brothers that I met at the Islamic uh, Center in Mishawaka, who after the prayer time came up to me and said, um, we're so glad you can be here. I'm from the city of Bethany. You know what happened in Bethany? I said, well, I think I do. That's where Jesus went to take a break, to hang out with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, kick his feet up and regroup. He said precisely. Bethany has been a friend of Jesus. And we want you to know that this center here in Mishawaka can be your Bethany. How do we navigate the challenges of the culture in which we live with the call to follow Jesus? And these words from Peter in 1 Peter 3.15. Whenever you have a chance, don't fail to give a word of witness for the hope that is within you but do so with a spirit of gentleness and respect. This from a former terrorist who 
at the end of his life, chose to be crucified upside down because his life had been transformed by Jesus, who had another way of working and for whom he felt he, his own crucifixion in the way Jesus had been crucified would not be worthy of his Lord. Thank you very much.